Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you are not a listener to this show, then you probably have not heard of Fitz John Porter. But since you are, you can hear me, you probably have. 150 years ago, on the other hand, few Americans would be unfamiliar with this controversial American soldier. His actions at the Second Battle of Bull Run were held by some to be traitorous, to the point that he was court-martialed and cashiered from the army afterwards. While others maintained that his prosecution was a matter of political chicanery. He spent the rest of his life seeking to clear his name, and historians have been arguing ever since. Now we may have the last word in the book, Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter. We'll talk with the author, William Marvel, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in Greenville, North Carolina, on Oxford Road, just down... 10th Street from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where I hope to be broadcasting from to you maybe later this spring of 2021. We're still in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic, and students are taking their classes remotely. I'm teaching remotely. I'm not in the Brewster Building, and I'm not speaking for ECU or for the students or the faculty, or anybody else, and likewise, my guest speaks only for himself, as always. It is a beautiful spring evening here in eastern North Carolina. It's first Wednesday of April 2021. We just had a pleasant 
weekend of athletic competition here on campus. The baseball team is ranked in the top 10 nationally, and they won all four games against their competition this weekend. The soccer team had their final match of the year, final home match. Normally, the women's team plays in the fall, but because of uh, COVID, they moved that to spring, so they just finished playing, and they won four to nothing, a, a solid way to finish the home season. The track and field team won a dual meet, and the women's golf team won a tournament. Everybody is winning. So things are, are cheerful here. At the same time, uh, the, the pandemic is still with us. The football team just got cleared to resume practice. And I just got noticed that two of my students, and uh, of course I'm teaching this semester, have tested positive. There's a system where the uh, dean of students lets faculty know. I'm not seeing anyone face-to-face on campus, so this does not affect me directly, but I do have to account for them and help them get their work done online, even though they are are ill at this point. Hopefully it will be mild cases. They'll be back at it soon, as young people often are. But it's a reminder that we're still not through the woods on this matter, and everybody keep wearing your mask. This semester has been a, a, a long one, I will say, uh, through the unique conditions we've been dealing with. And uh, looking forward to the end of it, in another few weeks, we will have commencement. They're going to try to have a an in-person commencement this year, three separate smaller ones held outdoors somewhere. And that will be welcome. Since we had no spring break to reduce travel, it has been a long grind since January. And it has helped me discover just what goes into uh, preparing a new course. I am teaching a course in modern military history that I'm enjoying very thoroughly, but had not taught before, and certainly not taught online before. And now that I've gone through three quarters of the class, I can say definitively it takes uh, to write a one-hour lecture and record it and present it to the students takes approximately 30 hours of work. So if there are two lectures in a a week, that's 60 hours plus everything else that has to be done besides teaching. Normally, uh, I mean, that seems like an absurd amount, uh, but once you've prepared a course, you can teach it again. And the second time you give that lecture, you might spend I might spend you know, five or 10 hours revising it, not 30 hours writing it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to teaching this class a second time and getting these first draft lectures into better shape. But it does sort of clarify the, the issue that, that sometimes professors get when someone hears, oh, I've got a two-hour teaching load. Oh, you teach two hours a week. You only work two hours a week. No. If you're writing two lectures, you're working 60 hours a week on that. And if you amortize that over giving the course four or five times, now it's more reasonable four or five hours per lecture. But that's where the time goes. Enough about that. Let's look forward to what's happening in future time here at Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, John Madison will be our guest talking about the Battle of Fredericksburg. His new book is titled A Worse Place Than Hell with a subtitle about Fredericksburg. We'll have Lauren Thompson joining us on April 21st with a book on soldier fraternization throughout the American Civil War. James Oakes, old friend of the show, will be back with his new book, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. 
We will have two retired soldiers joining us on May 5th, Colonel Jeffrey McCausland and Colonel Thomas Vosler, uh, joint authors of a book called Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. And we'll move into the middle of May, May 12th, with Barbara Tomlin's work on life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. Lots of good things coming up. You can always see them at www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page. You can find out who's going to be on the show. And you can contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio book and other things fund. It is not a 501c3. It is not tax deductible. Tax day is almost here. Uh, you, you, The way it works is you click on the button, PayPal, asks you for some information, and the next thing you know, your bank account is drained in my favor. Uh, I think you get to select the amount. I don't think it's random. Uh, and those of you who especially have chosen to give recurring donations each month, uh, just a few dollars, if that matches the benefit you get from listening to the show, then you feel good about yourself. I feel good using the money to buy books or replenish the bourbon supply or whatever it is I'm doing with it, and everybody wins. <clears throat> so let's get to uh, welcoming tonight's guest. William Marvel was last on the show. I was shocked to learn this. Uh, I think back in 2008, uh, it seems like it was just uh, a couple years ago, but but it was that long ago. Uh, Bill, are you there? I am, uh, in most senses of the term. <laughs> well, welcome back to uh, Civil War Talk Radio. I, I really couldn't believe it. We were corresponding about the last time you were on, and I, I looked it up, and it was 13 years ago. That just doesn't seem right. Uh, I have stopped looking at photographs uh, uh, <laughs> for that very reason. I think it's that's very wise. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, calendars are, are not our friends anymore. Uh, <laughs> so you... Have uh, I should say so? What have you been doing for thirteen years? And actually, I know you've written about uh, the book about Edwin Stanton. You, you've been doing a lot of other things. Um, so let's let's well, just get into. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to say I, the uh, in two thousand eight we would have been discussing one of the volumes of that four volume uh, history of the war. And then I went to, from that to Edwin Stanton, then to um, economic motivation among Union soldiers, and then uh, kind of came back to Fitzjohn Porter after leaving Stanton. So this story of Fitzjohn Porter, it's one that I, I, you know, I think everybody listening has seen the name. It, you, you pass through it, you're reading about Second Bull Run, and he shows up and uh, there's some controversy, and it doesn't look like there's any good guys in the story, and you just sort of pass over it. Um, what what drew you to focus on this story? Well, um, initially, uh, it was the Stanton Project. Uh, it became clear to me that uh, Porter was one of Stanton's first victims in a politicized uh, military ju- judicial uh, department. And uh, also, uh, Stephen Sears uh, suggested that I that I work on him um, because of his you know relation to McClellan. Uh, Stephen and I have uh, had quite a bit of 
correspondence back and forth uh, over McClellan and uh, and Stanton, for that matter. And every now and then he suggests an assignment for me, and that was the latest one. Wow, you could hardly have a better uh, better mentor for doing something like that. Um, well, let me. I mean, for the benefit of listeners not familiar here, the the two sentence version is is that Porter served under Pope at Second Bull Run and afterwards was was court martialed for uh, not executing orders. That's I. True. So let me put it this way. Um, I read the the official records volume. The whole uh, Porter Court Martial it makes up yes. a, a volume of its own. And a few years ago, I read it out of curiosity. And I, I keep a journal of things I've read because otherwise I'll forget and I'll start reading them again. And here's what I wrote after I, I read that volume, just two lines. Uh, wow, did he get the shaft convicted of departing two hours late to get to Second Manassas at no cost in arrival time and of failing to launch a suicidal attack, but actually guilty of dissing Pope and supporting Mac. Um, that was my conclusion, and having read your book, I, I'm, I'm still of that conclusion, but I like Porter even less now than I did after just reading the, the, the court-martial. Was that your intent? Uh, certainly not. Um, the um, the only really unlikable thing about him uh, that I could imagine is his tendency to disparage people whom he scorned, and uh, he certainly did that. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, it could be for political purposes he's less palatable now than he might have been a decade or two ago, um, because he was, uh, if not. I wouldn't say he was hostile to emancipation, but he was hostile to the idea of bending the war to that purpose. And that makes him somewhat unpalatable now in a way that he probably wasn't years ago. Uh, but his uh, his foremost uh, character traits uh, of a, uh, of a na- nature that could be criticized are uh, an inability to keep his opinion to himself um, and a tendency to uh, to view uh, himself as brighter than those around him, uh, which was often the case, and certainly in the in the proximity of John Pope and Irvin McDowell was true. That that I mean that reminds me that that was said of William uh, or of Charles Sumner as well that he always uh, believed he was the smartest person in the room, and that's one reason he didn't like Abraham Lincoln was that Lincoln never never paid that deference because Lincoln knew that he was the smartest person in the room he just didn't act like it and he didn't so he didn't defer to Sumner and Sumner hated that uh, but yeah it, it shows that, that Pope also certainly thought he was smarter or, or Porter certainly thought he was smarter than Pope and almost certainly was but that's just not a not a wise thing to show no, and that was his uh, that was his principal uh, downfall. Uh, on two occasions, he uh, engaged in correspondence that uh, gave his opinion away, and even though that opinion uh, didn't really affect his uh, performance or his uh, obedience to orders, 
Um, it certainly made it look as though uh, he could have uh, been deliberate in his undermining in, in undermining Pope, as Pope said. He, he actually didn't undermine Pope. In fact, on April, August 29th, he um, probably uh, saved Pope from a uh, uh, from a disaster similar to the one that he uh, that befell him the next day. The the story of what happens at Bull Run is certainly you know, central to your book, and and we need to talk about that in some detail. But what you've written here is really a biography of of Porter, which you point out has never been done. So let's backtrack and, and talk a bit about Porter's background. Um, he, he he served in the Mexican War. Served in the uh, the Utah War, that's much less well known. Were, did those influence his Civil War persona? I suspect the 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 Mexican War, and for that matter, the Utah War to an extent, did in in uh, probably uh, creating a uh, a conservative viewpoint because he was he was always cast with um, conservative, usually Southern uh, compatriots. Uh, during, the, uh, uh, during the Mexican War, uh, his, uh, uh, his commanders, uh, well, his, uh, his fellow officers were often Southerners. Uh, in fact, at uh, Molino del Rey, uh, he served with, uh, or I should say Robert, Robert Anderson served with his battery. He, Major Anderson, uh, then Captain Anderson, volunteered with Porter's battery uh, in that battle, um, and you know uh, Anderson was a conservative Kentuckian. Um, and then during the Utah War, he was chief of staff to Albert Sidney Johnston, and they uh, they spent the entire winter of 1857, 58, uh, living in the uh, in the same tent. A sixteen foot tent, hmm. and they spent the next two years or so in uh, in a new camp they established in Utah, and uh, he was uh, he became uh, uh, quite friendly with Johnston and was uh, badly disappointed when Johnston and, and surprised when Johnston resigned and went south. The mention of Anderson is interesting because he runs into him again uh, as the Civil War is about to break out. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more about the story of this uh, remarkable uh, Union general. The book is called Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter. We're talking with author William Marvel. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning into the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 
2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with William Marvel, author of Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter. So Porter, uh, at the beginning of the war, he's sort of like Zalik. He just shows up at all, wherever something's happening. Uh, there's Fitz John Porter. He's at Fort Sumter. He's in Baltimore. Uh, how does he get around so much? Well, he... Um Late in the 1850s, he gave up his line commission to go into the adjutant general's department, and uh, and that's the department where special envoys are sent to um, critical spots. And he was uh, well trusted in that department, and so he he ended up going to uh, Charleston to um, inspect the uh, facilities down there. Uh, in fact, I think he uh, left uh, on Election Day, or, or at least was on the road on Election Day of 1860. Um, so it was things were immediately tense there, and uh, he uh, advocated different uh, repairs to Fort Moultrie, and particularly he uh, he advised uh, that a new commander be sent to the post. The, uh, the commander at uh, Fort Moultrie uh, turns out to have been his um, battalion commander from the Mexican War, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Gardner, uh, whom D.H. Uh, Hill uh, described as worthy to perhaps be a small village postmaster somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Porter uh, recommended another officer. Uh, be placed in command there, and of course that officer ended up being uh, Robert Anderson. He didn't specifically recommend Anderson. He simply wanted someone uh, more judicious and more energetic. So from there, uh, he gets involved in the the issues with Baltimore, with the attempt to bring uh, federal troops, state troops and federal troops down to the national capital. And there's the riot there, the 6th Massachusetts encounters trouble. Uh, what role did he play in that uh, scenario? Well, he was, he was in Harrisburg at the time. He was, uh, as soon as uh, uh, 
violence uh, became imminent, he was sent to Harrisburg to uh, organize and uh, um, transfer volunteers to Washington, um, mainly as an assistant to uh, Governor Curtin. And uh, he, uh, when he heard about the uh, trouble in Baltimore, he got a hold of uh, another uh, comrade whom he had taught at West Point with George Thomas, who was uh, then a major in the Second U.S. Cavalry, and he had Thomas get some troops together, regular troops, and uh, and he had the uh, a Pennsylvania uh, major general of militia uh, take his troops and start toward Baltimore, and he was on his way to uh, to quell the uh, the violence in Baltimore when he got word from uh, Secretary of War Cameron uh, to desist and pull back because they had had that, uh, Lincoln had had that agreement with the mayor of Baltimore, and uh, and so the troops were called off. And uh, while he was in Harrisburg, too, there was trouble in St. Louis, uh, and Washington City was cut off uh, telegraphically from the rest of the country, uh, when uh, a telegram came into Harrisburg from uh, Postmaster General Montgomery Blair's brother saying that there's trouble out here, uh, the old regular in charge of the troops won't muster the volunteers to protect the arsenal, and, uh, and uh, Porter took the responsibility of telegraphing back and saving two or three days' time, uh, ordering... Uh, General Harney in St. Louis to allow um, uh, Captain, um, uh, I've forgotten his name now, the, uh, uh, the fellow who was killed, killed at w- Wilson's Creek. Yeah, Nathaniel um, Lyon. In Nathaniel Lyon, yes. Um, he ordered him to allow Lyon to uh, muster the troops to defend uh, St. Louis. And he was, uh, you know, he used the authority of both General Scott and the uh, Secretary of War to do that, which he had been told he could use in Harrisburg for events there. So he was sort of stepping out, he was taking a chance, stepping outside his authority um, to, uh, he thought, uh, save St. Louis. And uh, whether he did or not, I don't know, because uh, Lyon was crazy as a loon, and I'm not... I'm not sure that uh, having him in charge didn't lead to more violence than might have been necessary, but uh, at least he uh, he was trying to uh, preserve federal authority. Yeah, and he and was, it's, go ahead. I'd say it's significant that he's using his initiative here, and uh, you know, officers are not just supposed to be robots uh, right. doing exactly as they're told. And he was uh, he was not criticized for it. In fact, uh, I think he was regarded as a uh, good judgment. In in the case of going through Baltimore, and I, I sort of hesitate to mention this because I don't want to sound not trying to to pick on on nits here. Uh, in the book, you write that Lincoln promised that uh, to the mayor of Baltimore that troops would not go through the city, and that caught my eye because I remember two days later Lincoln spoke to a, a commission or a committee from Baltimore that wanted no more troops going through Maryland at all. And he really got on his horse at them. He said, there's, 
you know, the, the country's being threatened. You want me to not defend it? There's no, he phrased it, there's no Washington in that, no Jackson in that, no honor nor manhood in that. The troops are not moles. They can't go underground. They're not birds. They can't fly. They're going through right. your state. And and that seemed inconsistent with making a promise. So I, I, I read your footnotes. I, I, I followed up. I, 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 so I, I guess I pulled back those. from calling it a, a promise not to go through. But he said well, he would do his best. The difference is going through Baltimore or going through Maryland, because true, the true. the route that they chose was uh, th- still through Maryland, from Harvard yes. Grace down to uh, Annapolis, over to Relay House, and to Washington. Right, and and, uh, and Lincoln, and he told the the mayor of Baltimore, if if General Scott can make that happen, I want it to happen to go around Baltimore. But if Scott had said we have to go through the city, my my guess is they would have gone through the city. Uh, oh, but then, as you true. point out with St. St. Louis, you might have more violence. Anyway, a, a small point. Let me. We we next see uh, Fitzjohn Porter at the first Bull Run campaign, and everybody knows the main story of uh, McDowell and Beauregard, and we all know as sort of a footnote. Oh, and by the way, there was. Patterson's Union force off to the west, but they never showed up, and they didn't keep the rebels from showing up either. Uh, Porter's there. What what happened there? He was the uh, again chief of staff to um, General Patterson, who was another old uh, uh, Mexican War veteran. In fact, they had uh, they had met each other in Mexico City, uh, probably right after the capture of the city, and. Um, uh, Patterson was ordered uh, up into western Maryland uh, and then into what's now West Virginia and was expected to hold Johnston um, in Winchester, near Winchester, by demonstrations. Um, and it was, uh, and he did make some demonstrations, but at the same time, his uh, supply line was so long and his uh, his wagon train so relatively small that he could barely uh, keep his men fed. And they had been uniformed uh, early in the spring, and their uniforms were wearing out. They couldn't get any any resupplies. They were discontented. And uh, at the very, in the last week of their service, the question became day to day, um, shall we stay here? Shall we go to to uh, Harper's Ferry, which shall it be? And uh, all along, um, Porter and uh, uh, probably Patterson at, at Porter's urging, urging uh, had been hoping that they would be ordered closer to the uh, to the Manassas line, probably Leesburg, say. Um, and uh, Scott had not uh, approved that. And so, so Scott was somewhat. Um, uh, responsible for Porter Patterson's position, and uh, Patterson was in kind of an impossible situation. Uh, he he couldn't have probably held Johnston if he had made a if he had been able to make a, a significant advance in force on him. And uh, and of course, once uh, Johnston got a little bit of a head start, uh, Patterson was uh, unable to catch up because Johnston could get to the railroad in time to uh, to get to Manassas, and that's exactly how it worked. 
let's jump ahead to the Peninsula campaign, uh, just because I definitely want to talk about Second Bull Run. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in the Peninsula campaign, Porter becomes one of the, 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 if if not the most important, confidant of George McClellan, uh, commands a corps of of McClellan's troops in the Army of the Potomac. But the one thing that grabbed me in your account of of, uh, Porter on the Peninsula was that he had Thaddeus Lowe, the balloonist, in his under his command or in his vicinity at least. And the time uh, Porter goes up in a balloon and it runs away, I had to put the book down. I was getting vertigo just reading about it. Uh, <laughs> give us the thirty-second version. A, yeah, for someone like me, and I, I have severe acrophobia. Same uh, here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I I even have a hard time going to visit Will Green because he lives on such a per- precipitous uh, uh, mountain. But uh, uh-huh. I I uh, uh, hated to to really uh, tell the story because he uh, what happened was Porter got into the balloon early one morning. He wanted to make an observation. Um, the the uh, assistant Lowe's assistant was not around. So he um, he thought he was going to go up and make a uh, uh, a tethered uh, view from probably a hundred feet or so, but the uh, tether line broke. Um, apparently, it had been damaged with with acid by uh, by people on the crew who didn't like the assistant and were were hoping that he would go up first, but. Uh, uh, Porter ended up shooting up into the air, and uh, someone on the ground said, get the valve. Well, the valve had either been tied or tangled into the netting that held the balloon, and so Porter had to shimmy up the ropes, shinny up, and uh, climb the netting to get the uh, the lanyard that held the valve, and then with that in his teeth, let himself back down into the basket, which was swaying back and forth below him. He had to time it and drop into the basket. And this is probably, <laughs> I'm guessing, at a 1,000 feet. And by that time, by the time he um, finally got uh, control of the balloon, he could see Fort Monroe at one end of the uh, peninsula, and he could see sunlight um, on the spires of, of Richmond. Uh, at the on the other extreme, so he was quite a ways up, and uh, he let he let some air out of the balloon, and and uh, he had drifted over Confederate territory by then. So he starts sketching madly everything he can see, and as he uh, as he comes uh, lowering the you know letting the hydrogen out of the balloon and coming lower to the ground, he coasts back into Union territory. And finally, he, he gets within a couple of hundred feet of the ground, and he lets all the gas out of the balloon, and, and it acts like a you know a half-open parachute to break his fall. But um, a tent in the 72nd Pennsylvania ended up breaking the, the fall, finally. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> That that was a memorable story, I have to say, and, yeah. and I, I don't care for heights, and that was that yeah. was something else. So, we all know the Peninsula Campaign ultimately fails. This is where Porter has his first major battle, commanding 
The Fifth Corps at Gaines Mill. Uh, he commands troops in the Seven Days Battles at Malvern Hill. McClellan is is defeated and, and demoralized. And I'm, I'm giving us the thumbnail sketch here so we can jump to the, the, the meat of this story. The, uh, the, the War Department creates a new field army under John Pope uh, and sends them to try to get Richmond from the north. And McClellan's army is sent piece by piece to go join with Pope. But there's no love lost between the Army of the Potomac and McClellan's soldiers and this new army under Pope this boastful Westerner. Porter's Corps is one of the first ones sent there, and he joins it in time for the Second Battle of Manassas. What what does he do wrong there, or what does he do? What is he accused of doing that gets him in such trouble? Well, uh, depends on where you want to start. Um, I mean, you well, we've got go... two minutes before the break, so give us a, a quick intro, and we'll we'll carry on. Okay, he uh, in a in a series of uh, after a series of orders are uh, given to him, um, some of which reach him, some of which don't. He's accused of uh, of disobeying those orders when, in fact, he uh, is is really obeying the orders of Irvin McDowell, who is with him and is by uh, virtue of his seniority in command of that part of the field, uh, something that McDowell uh, never really uh, admitted. And, uh, and he was uh, later accused of having held back uh, his troops from an attack that, uh, that he was ordered to make much later than the prosecution uh, alleged, when in fact he was uh, basically waiting most of the day for um, for orders, and then uh, um, when they finally came, it was too near dark to do anything. And uh, if he had made the, the attack or the advance or then the attack that he was supposedly ordered to make, it was not going to be into Stonewall Jackson's exposed open flank. It was going to be into the heart of, uh, Long of Longstreet's Cole. position. Which, which you didn't know about. We're going to have to take another break. We'll come back and then find out what what happened at this court-martial that followed. We're talking with William Marvel, author of Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. 
It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with William Marvel, author of Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter. Uh, so, Bill, Porter is, is court-martialed after the battle of Second Manassas for failing to obey an order that he didn't actually get and that, that he really could not have uh, uh, practically obeyed. Who did this to him? Why, why was this done? Well, um, you could say that it uh, wasn't really John Pope. Uh, Pope, of course, was worried about his own reputation, um, and uh, he uh, it, it served his uh, uh, his ego to say that the Battle of Bull Run had been lost because uh, Porter was uh, faithless to him, uh, when in fact uh, Porter was. Uh, on the second day at Second Bull Run, he was uh, he led one of the the bloodiest charge in the uh, in the entire battle. Uh, it was uh, it was helpful to Pope personally, and also helpful to the administration uh, that Pope not be found uh, responsible for this defeat. And uh, I. I I honestly don't know to what degree uh, Abraham Lincoln was consciously uh, involved in the reasoning. Uh, he, he seems to have been um, uh, unflatteringly uh, uh, unable to detect the uh, flaws in the court-martial, and, and so he, uh, he approved Porter's condemnation, but most of the legwork in what was essentially a political hit job was done by uh, Edwin Stanton, uh, to some degree Salmon P. Chase, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, and Joseph Holt, uh, whom uh, Stanton uh, had installed as, uh, as Judge Advocate General, uh, a, a then new position, on the very day that Pope made his accusation uh, first to the president and the cabinet about Porter. Um, and it's my, uh, my belief, uh, after, uh, as well as I know Edwin Stanton, that, uh, that he chose Holt to get Porter. And he certainly did. Uh, and he not only got him in 1862, he kept getting him for the next 13 years every time Porter tried for a retrial. Uh, Holt was the one standing in the way, or uh, or finding someone else who would. And now, the uh, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to, you, you show very clearly that 
the the trial is is a setup in that the the military court is packed with officers who have a grudges against uh, Fitzjohn Porter or political reasons to oppose him, and the conduct of the trial is is farcical. Every objection of his side is overruled. The other side is always upheld. Uh, so there's no question that the fix is in that this is done for for political reasons. Uh, it's not it's it's not justice in in any sense of the word. But let let me ask you a question here about the, the issue of politics and war. Uh, and and I want to quote you say on your page one hundred nine. You're talking about how uh, Porter did in fact write political letters to editors and politicians, and he did engage in, he criticized the administration, and, and he, he he was political too, just as, as uh, Stanton and others were political. And you argue that um, his partisanship was only incidental, whereas theirs was fundamental. They, meaning the radical Republicans, tried to manipulate military affairs for the sake of political goals, while Porter resented their political agenda, mainly for the impediment it would pose to military success. And my, my philosophical question to you is, is, where is the difference between politics and military goals in a civil war? Uh, it, isn't it false to try to separate them? Isn't that what Westmoreland did wrong? Isn't that what the Hague and the British generals did wrong in World War I? The, the war is too important to be left to the generals. It, it's inherently political. And... Uh and who is uh, to decide which of the uh, the different elements of uh, an assortment of political agenda are uh, to be uh, pursued? Um, well, the, it, it does. Does a general have uh, the right to his own opinion? Does he have the right to share it privately? That that's a and you you raised that I because I think we would both say no the general doesn't have a in a democracy or a democratic republic the the public decides who the government is and the government civil government makes the policies uh, now now Porter doesn't overstep that bounds he does keep his opinions what he thinks to be private but when he's writing to a newspaper editor. And knows they're going to get in the paper. Then he's really engaging in public politics, isn't he? Uh, not really, because I mean, he's obviously he's offering uh, ammunition to uh, an editor who has a, a viewpoint that he shares uh, with Porter. But <laughs> for the most part, he's he's lobbying for McClellan. He is uh-huh. uh, particularly his early letters are begging. Um, Manton Marble at the world to um, to give McClellan a chance to uh, you know to uh, train his army and then use it. Uh, of course, that's uh, complicated both by uh, McClellan falling ill uh, at Christmas of 1861 and mm-hmm. uh, McClellan ultimately being uh, much less uh, able to make decisions and move ahead uh, when the time is right which is uh, what what Porter would have preferred. Um, of, of the two, I, I think uh, Porter was the one who would have been more active as the commander, but he was loyal to his commander. And, uh, and of course, 
it, it, certain to a fault even be uh, yeah. it, the the private well the 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 telegraphic dispatches he sent through the military telegraph to general burnside who was a friend uh, you know porter's judgment there is obviously not good because he he mixed personal aspersions against pope along with important military information that had right. to go up to the war department and Burnside wasn't smart enough to separate those two. Um, the the conviction, while one can argue whether Porter overstepped his bounds and whether uh, perhaps an injustice, a, a radical sacrifice, as you put it, uh, his sacrifice might have ultimately been beneficial for reminding the army that the civilians are in charge. Uh, at the same time, it's certainly unjust, and he fights the rest of his life to get it overturned. Does he get any satisfaction? Um, a modicum, yes. Um, after 15 years, he finally uh, was uh, given a, a chance for a, a review of the case, uh, not a retrial, but a mm-hmm. review by a board of officers. And they, uh, they concluded that he had done absolutely nothing wrong that the only uh, critical, uh, the only criticism they had was of his uh, uh, his uh, malignant uh, allusions to Pope. Uh, and he yeah. could hardly disagree with that because that's what had undone him. But uh, it was another, let me see, six or seven years um, that he, uh, that he tried to uh, get reinstated, which the board of officers had recommended that he be reinstated from the day he was uh, initially appointed in the regular army. And uh, uh, politicians, uh, including James Garfield, who was on the court and who had uh, who had gone on to on the court prejudiced against Porter and uh, failed to recuse himself. Um, he did his best to assure that uh, Porter uh, had had no vindication ever, because probably he realized that that would make him look bad, uh, which he certainly does. And um, and John Logan used uh, Porter as a punching bag every time uh, the subject came up, because it was uh, beneficial for him politically. Uh, in fact, he he cast his. Uh, most venomous barbs when he was still uh, hoping that he would be the presidential candidate. Uh, So uh, finally, uh, what Porter got uh, in 1886, when uh, after the uh, uh, after uh, a Democrat had taken the White House, was reinstatement from uh, 1861 as a colonel in the regular army. That was his, his last regular rank. And he got no back pay. Uh, he had no. Uh, um, he never got a pension because there was a limit. There was only a limited number of officers who were allowed pensions under the uh, the new retirement plan, and and that number had long since been exceeded. So uh, his twenty uh, odd years of uh, expenses were lost. Um, he got no money out of it, and of course everyone. To this day, wonders uh, if they if they don't look into the subject um, deeply, wonders if there wasn't something to it, and in fact there wasn't. 
I, I have to but, agree with that. I, I, as somebody who studied the war, you know, for decades, I'd never really paid close attention to it. And when I read the volume of the trial, I came away with what I said at the start: Wow, did this guy get screwed? Um, clearly, he didn't do anything at Bull Run to deserve what happened to him. But it, it, the way uh, you know, the British occasionally would execute one of their admirals to encourage the others, as Voltaire put it. Um, it's unjust, but it keeps morale up, uh, or it keeps attention focused. Uh, well, I, I don't mean to be flippant it. about it, but, but, but well, you know, major major key was was cashiered at about the same time uh, for making clearly uh, improper remarks. Well, well is, this it, it may have been improper, <laughs> but all he said was, "Well, isn't that the game?" Uh, that uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're trying to drag it out long enough that uh, uh, that there can be a negotiated peace. I mean, he was being cynical, um, and yet mm-hmm. he was uh, he was cashiered. But he wasn't a career officer. Um, he was, uh, I think, he was a political appointee. So it was no real loss to him. Whereas for Porter, it was his whole life. He had invested his whole mm-hmm. life in it, and. Uh, and certainly deserved better. Well, there's no question about that. I, and and he, he doesn't deserve... And this book, I think, will go a long way to, to changing that among anyone in the Civil War community who reads it. We'll certainly come away recognizing that. Um, the, the, the idea of, that he was a, a sacrifice, just as there's no justice in who gets killed at the front, uh, you know, the mini ball doesn't discriminate between the worthy and the unworthy it just uh, you know good men died and, and bad men lived uh, it, it's almost it, to me it seems almost as if he's a similar casualty of the war uh, he helped the war effort substantially uh, I, by I suffering this injustice I think he would have much preferred to have been killed at the front and it's really quite remarkable I, that he wasn't because he always seemed to be in the forefront um, particularly at no, Mount Vernon Hill. And yeah, I, no, that's, I mean, I, that's a good point. I, I, I completely agree that, that to, to, yeah, yeah I, I'm still here. Um, I completely agree that, that lose, a, a soldier like him would rather uh, lose his life than lose his good name. But again, hopefully uh, this book helps restore. You can't bring his life back, but you have... Uh, Restored to anyone who reads it, the 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 good name of Fitzjohn Porter, uh, as a, a an honorable soldier who did, uh, who followed orders as best he could, and uh, certainly didn't do the things he was accused of in Second Bull Run. Um, we have like thirty seconds left. What's what's next on the table for you? Uh, hard to say. I was going to do a book about Democratic opposition in the war. But uh, when all the repositories closed down, uh, that made manuscripts unavailable. So I've been uh, toying with a, uh, a number of uh, projects, one of which uh, involves uh, the sudden resurgence of Confederate morale early in 1864 after the uh, miserable year of 1863. Interesting. Uh, but 
your stuff is always interesting. I have to say that, and and this was no exception. I, I enjoyed this thoroughly. I read it carefully. Some of it I found myself writing. No, I don't agree with this. But when I do that, I know I'm engaged in a book, and <laughs> and I certainly was with this one. Uh, listeners, you will not be sorry. Uh, uh, for the time you spend with Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitzjohn Porter by William Marvel, who's been our guest tonight. Uh, Bill, it's great talking with you again. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.